Alright folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I am excited on this Wednesday afternoon. It's, it's not really afternoon, but that's when you're going to get the podcast. Uh, recording this Wednesday at about 11, just, just after 11 o'clock, basically. And I finished writing an article this morning. It was very productive on a small forward article that I'm going to talk about in the third segment. But I got delayed because I wanted to finish watching Slovenia versus France. Not necessarily the game that I thought I was going to be spending time watching today, but it was great. Luka Doncic scores 47 points in that one. Obviously, not necessarily what everybody's here to talk about, what everybody's here to uh, hear from me about, but I did want to talk about Serbia a little bit. Did want to go over the Southwest Division a little bit because Luka Doncic was playing today. And then we're going to talk about the small forward article, Davon Reed versus Christian Brown in the third segment. But first, let's talk about Serbia. The last two games that Serbia played were a back-to-back on Monday and Tuesday. Serbia played Finland on Sunday, and it was an absolute decimation, just a complete annihilation of Finland. Lari Markkinen, he was okay in that game. I, th- I thought he started it off actually pretty poorly, kind of came around towards the, the middle of the game, but at that point, the game was already decided. Serbia had gone up by 30 points at halftime, basically 28, and they never trailed. They never looked back at that point. They never really looked back after the first quarter when Jokic really separated himself from everybody and was just playing fantastic basketball throughout. The shot was a little bit shaky for Jokic. They won 170. He had 13 points on 6 of 12 shooting. 6 of 12, 50%. Really shaky performance from Nikola Jokic. Sarcasm there. He did go 0 of 3 from 3. Uh, isn't necessarily hitting his free throws at the, the great rate that everybody wants him to, but he did have 14 rebounds and 7 assists. He was plus 18. Just a physically dominant performance from Nikola Jokic that night that day. And he got a lot of help. There were six Serbs in double figures and nine of the 10 players that played had at least six points. Ristich, who's Jokic's most common backup right now uh, because Nikola Milutinov was out and has been out for basically the entire group play stage. Uh, He didn't play. Ristich played four minutes and Serbia basically went small with Lucic as the backup center in the minutes without Jokic. So those weren't great, uh, especially in the game against Israel, but they were great against Finland. And Micic and Kalinic were each awesome in that game. Micic really showed up, and he's just been playing fantastic throughout the entire tournament. Kalinic, though, he was fantastic in that game as well. Each of those guys, Micic and Kalinic, they combined for 27 points on just 12 shots and were super, super efficient. The entire Serbian team, frankly, was efficient. And through the first three games of this tournament, Serbia had not been ta- they hadn't been challenged at all. It just felt like Serbia was going to breeze through group play, no questions asked. Like I said, Larry Markkinen and Finland, they just didn't have enough. Finland was demoralized this entire game because Serbia never gave them a chance. This game was basically over by halftime, and it was a glorified scrimmage at that point. However, Serbia and Israel, that was a much better game. And it took a massive performance from Nikola Jokic 
to give Serbia the edge in this one. They won 89 to 78, but this game was close, even kind of going into the last five or six minutes or so. There were times where this game was tied, and Israel at one point had a lead in this game. That's like there was a, a number that the broadcast shared that before the Israel game, the average number of minutes that Serbia trailed throughout the tournament before was three minutes. Actually, that's not even true. It was tied or losing. It was three total minutes. For the other 37 minutes on average, Serbia had been leading. I don't know whether that's changed since the, the Israel game. I would assume that it has, but Serbia had just been completely dominant. But Israel was giving them as much as they could possibly handle. I thought that Micic wasn't very good in this one, despite the fact that he finished with 19 points, started really slow, and I thought he was kind of bullied when he was kind of on both sides of the ball. Bringing the ball up the court wasn't necessarily his specialty, especially against Jan Madar, who was a 2022 second round draft pick this past year, playing for the Israel team. He was drafted by the Boston Celtics. I didn't expect him to be this good, but he looks like a future really, really good player. Not sure if it's star potential, but he just looks so capable. And he played with such confidence and speed out there. Harassing Micic defensively, he forced a couple backcourt violations, got a couple steals and pick sixes. He even defended Jokic a little bit, despite Yamadar being 6'3", 180 or something like that. Basically half of Jokic's size he was doing a credible job, or just as credible as about anybody on the Israel team. He's going to be a steal for the Celtics, I think, which they don't need any more players. They don't need any more good pieces, but they're going to get them. Micic started slow, but Kalinic had some clutch threes in that game. Yaramaz was a, had a clutch shot as well, even though he was bad for much of the game. But the real story was Jokic. Jokic had 29 points on 11 of 13 from the field. At halftime, he had 20 points on 7 of 7. It was absurd. Some of the shots that he was hitting, how easy he was getting to them, but even some of the contested finishes that he had. 7 of 7 from the field is really, really impressive. Also had 11 rebounds, 5 assists, two ste- or 4 steals, and 2 blocks. International basketball has an efficiency metric, which is basically like a it's a single game measuring stick for box score numbers. Jokic had a plus 46 efficiency, which it was the highest of the tournament. At least I haven't checked what Lucas is in this past game. Let's actually check. Oh no, Luca finished with a plus 47 efficiency, so he officially has the the best box score game of the tournament now after his game with France today. But this was, to date, uh, for Jokic, it was the highest of the tournament, that plus 46 number. Outpacing Jonas Valanciunas at plus 45 versus Bosnia, and then Giannis at plus 43 in his 41-point game versus Ukraine. He was so good, and it felt like Serbia had to really rely upon him when I think the general team, they weren't performing. The The ball movement game that Serbia usually has, the outside shooting that they're able to pair with it. None of it was really working for Serbia, so they had to go to Jokic pretty consistently, whether it was on the pick and roll, whether it was in the post. He was playmaking. He was uh, scoring. It was awesome to watch, and you love to see that from Jokic. 
just because you know like he can get to that level. He hasn't been asked to get to that level, but against Israel, he had to. Because if he hadn't, I think Israel probably would have won. They were really, really impressive. Denny Avdia, probably their highest profile player. He had some impressive moments in that game as a creator, as an outside shooter. Yamadar, as I mentioned, very, very good. But Serbia still cruised. They still were able to win by double digits, even if it was more contested than people would like. And it's pretty clear at this stage, uh, through basically all of group play, Serbia has one game remaining against Poland, who's 3-1 and one in the group. Serbia is probably the favorite, despite the fact that Luka has been fantastic, despite the fact that Giannis and Greece have not lost. It still feels to me like Serbia is the top contender because around Jokic, they still have these other pieces that can perform, and they haven't even asked Jokic to get to his best place, where nobody in the entire international tournament can really stop him. I don't think there's any question that he can go up against anybody and perform at an absolute apex predator level. Luka obviously can too. He scored 47 points today against France. But it still feels like most of the time, Jokic is going to have a mismatch and he's going to be able to generate easier baskets than a guy like Luka. So Serbia has to be my top contender at this point. They have Micic, of course. All of the role players have really performed. Lucic came around over the course of these last couple of games. Kalinic has been great throughout. Marinkovic didn't play over the course of these past two, but he's been good. Yarmaz is good for a clutch shot or two. I need to know why Jagadic Karitsa gets post touches. That's I had that question yesterday, and it just felt very odd to watch him crab dribbling from the post while Jokic was right behind him, just ready to field a ready to field a rebound. It actually ended up being an air ball, and Jokic grabbed the air ball out of the air and finished with one hand. It was very funny. But either way, I think that Serbia has the greatest greatest depth of talent on their roster, and they also probably have the best player in the tournament, whether it's Giannis, whether it's Luka. I think that Jokic has proven to be the best overall in terms of this international style. But we're going to see. We're going to see what he looks like. Giannis and Greece still have not been defeated. Germany, I think, is a contender. They've been more impressive than France. France lost today to Slovenia. And Rudy Gobert, despite being okay, he's not quite the leader that, that France, I think, needs. And then Spain, they're 4-1 in their tournament or in their bracket, but they haven't really been tested. But they're at the top of their group, so have to be considered. Poland, I don't think, is going to be a contender in Group D. That's Serbia's group. Those two teams haven't played yet. They will play on Thursday. We're going to see what that looks like. But I'd have to imagine that the top contenders are probably Serbia, Slovenia, Greece, and Germany. We'll see if that ultimately comes to bear but I'll be very interested to see how it pans out. For now, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Southwest Division doing the Southwest Preview. And then we're going to talk about Luka Doncic as well. But first, football is back, everybody. There's nobody that is more excited than your friends at Superbook Sports. My fantasy team, it is all loaded up and ready to go. The Broncos, they play on Monday night against the Seattle 
Uh, Seahawks, I'm very, very excited to watch that game. Also very excited to watch the opener on Amazon Prime. That should be very, very fascinating. But if you want to bet on any of the games, Superbook is bringing Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands. And now they will match 100% of your first bet up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium to enjoy football this fall. Just visit Superbook.com or download the Superbook app, uh, the Superbook Colorado app, excuse me, right now and start getting in on all of the action. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700. and roll Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support on the program, as always. If you can, it would be really awesome if you could rate this podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leaving a five-star review would be super, super helpful. Uh, Those really help grow the program. They help make sure that everybody gets to see this Nuggets podcast and and gets to to bask in the glory that I I keep uh, serving out. So thank you so much in advance if you do that. All right. Uh, before I get into the Southwest Division, I do want to say, uh, Slovenia, it wasn't just Luke Doncic, just 47 points in this win. Vlako Chanchar hits a clutch shot over Rudy Gobert in the mid-range to help seal that victory. He wasn't like this massive offensive force throughout this game. I'm pretty sure he only had six points. But to hit a clutch shot like that, time running down, only up 84-82 at the time, and you've got like 40 seconds left on the clock. And Vlatko steps into a, a two-dribble mid-range jumper that he shot right over Rudy Gobert. That's a really impressive shot. That's an impressive look for a player in Vlatko who's been mostly, I think, a stationary shooter for much of his career. Vlatko being able to get to that shot, convert it. Maybe I got to rewrite this small forward article that's coming out, uh, that, that came out already that I'm going to talk about in the third segment because, hey, Vlatko might be pre- pushing for some time here. But first, let's talk about the Southwest Division. Let's talk about Luka Doncic and everybody in that division. All the teams and their moves in this division, uh, Dallas, Houston, Memphis, New Orleans, San Antonio. It's not the most glamorous division in the world, but there are some really, really interesting pieces, some really, really interesting teams. Dallas at the top of it, they went to the Western Conference Finals last year. They got a little bit of a break with the Clippers being hampered by injury, with the Nuggets being hampered by injury. Phoenix just decided to crap the bet in Game 7 against them, but the reason why they did is because they have maybe the best player in the world in Luka Doncic. I think that it's Giannis or Jokic. I think that those two are better than Luka, but there's a strong possibility that Luka overtakes that mantle and might even win MVP this year if Dallas does really well. Because they lost Jalen Brunson, and... Brunson goes to the Knicks, very, very important piece for the Mavericks over the course of these last couple of years, or at least this year, like the year before he actually wasn't that great. But I will say that Dallas is kind of in a weird spot right now because everything that they do runs through Luka, except for the stuff that they had run through Brunson or Dinwiddie. 
And Spencer Dinwiddie is now taking a larger role within the offense because they didn't really replace Brunson, who was so, so important to their playoff run, but also to their regular season, where they're able to set themselves up with a, I think they're a four seed, maybe a five seed. I think five seed. It was just very fascinating to think about. Because Dallas, they added Christian Wood in a trade. They added JaVale McGee in free agency. Both of those guys are bigs. Both of those guys, probably their best position is center. Where Christian Wood gets to use his offensive game to space the floor. JaVale McGee gets to operate like a a natural rim protector, rim runner. But they they just added fives. They had Maxi Kleba as a big man option. They had Dwight Powell, who was starting for them last year. Dwight Powell, obviously not great. So maybe you get some, some replacement there. But to not replace Brunson is very odd. It feels like they're going to play Christian Wood at the four and JaVale McGee at the five with both Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell coming off the bench. That seems very odd. It seems very interesting to me. I don't think that Dallas is going to be as good. And we're going to talk about that in this next little section here. But let's first go to Houston. They drafted Jabari Smith Jr. at the with the third overall pick. Paolo Bancaro went first overall in kind of a surprise move. Chet Holmgren, uh, sorry to him for being out for the year for this entire season. Uh, he went to Oklahoma City. They're going to go through another tank year. And then Houston, they get Jabari Smith Jr., who a lot of people thought was the best prospect in the draft. Not really surprised that it went that way because it actually makes sense for all the teams involved to go the routes that they did. But Jabari Smith... Adding him to Jalen Green, adding him to Kevin Porter Jr., Alper and Shangun, it makes sense in theory. There's definitely a reason to believe in the vision that the Houston Rockets are putting out there. In practice, all of those players are going to have to hit, or at least two to three of them are going to have to really hit if they want to get out from the cellar where they were this last year. They kept Eric Gordon. They kept Jay Sean Tate. Those guys are going to serve as veterans for this team. They let go of John Wall. He went to the LA Clippers. They are going young, though. It's very clear that that's the direction that this Houston team is going. They are still in development mode. Jalen Green had a good rookie year this last year. I got into a little bit of hot water when I mentioned that maybe Bones Highland should have been first team over Jalen Green. Houston Rockets fans did not like that one. They were very, very upset. But it does seem like they're asking a lot of him. And he's in a really, really tough position being the first option now on a Houston team that doesn't really have a great structure. They're still trying to figure out their structure. And you've got a lot of young guys that are going all the different directions and don't necessarily have a a central figure that they can rely upon. Maybe Jalen Green develops into that guy. But even if he averages 23, 24 points per game, they're still going to have to come up with some defense. Maybe Jabari Smith does that, but I'm a little bit skeptical. Now, Memphis, they lost DeAnthony Melton to Philly. They lost Kyle Anderson to Minnesota. And they replaced those guys with, I guess, David Roddy at the 23rd overall pick that they traded for. Jake Laravia, who they traded for with, I think they had the 29th pick and moved up to 25 to ensure that they got him. Very odd selections 
I guess it makes sense because they really want to load up on forwards. They really want to make sure that they surround guys like John Morant, Dylan Brooks, Desmond Bain with good forwards that can kind of be interchangeable with Jaron Jackson being their five. You get Roddy and Laravia who maybe one of them hits and then you have a good playoff player to add to your three, four man rotation, but it just doesn't feel like they added enough to keep up the pace that they had where they were, they had won like 55, 56 games this last year. Like they were really good. They had a really strong formula. I don't think that that's a great way to approach this season because now you've got a bunch of teams in the West that are better. Memphis isn't necessarily on, like they weren't on the the front of the mind for a lot of teams. Like, Denver definitely didn't think that hard about their their Memphis trip at the beginning of the season. When Memphis ultimately became a like a clear second seed in the West, everybody started to really game plan for them. But now that you've got a full year to really understand how to try and guard Ja, how to try to guard Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson, they're going to look a little bit different. And not to mention, Jaron Jackson, offseason surgery may not be back until... 2023. We're just going to have to see what it looks like, but I think that they're going to take a step back. New Orleans, the Pelicans, they were the eighth seed this last year. Maybe the nine. I think they were actually the nine and then flip-flopped with uh, the Clippers. And they were very, very impressive in getting into the uh, Western Conference playoffs after the play-in. As well as now, uh, well, in the first round against the Suns, they're actually really, really good. Very, very impressive, despite the fact that Devin Booker missed a couple of those games. They were still very impressive. Uh, Jose Alvarado made a name for himself in the playoffs as kind of a a nice on-ball defender. Brandon Ingram has fully elevated himself into kind of that that all-star conversation now. They still they have CJ CJ McCollum, excuse me. And now you get back Zion Williamson, who was an all NBA caliber player just a couple of years ago. He missed all of last season, and that's a little bit of a question mark. But I think you can definitely say that New Orleans is getting better. They've got more talent than they did last year, despite the fact that they didn't change anything. A lot of their young guys are gonna get better. They had three rookies. In their playoff rotation, those guys are going to improve. They're going to learn how to play the game. So it should be interesting to see what they look like. They've got a lot of NBA talent from top to bottom of their roster. And I actually think that they're a really interesting dark horse to lead their division in wins. Whether it actually happens or not remains to be seen, but could they win 50 wins this year? Win 50 games, excuse me? I think they probably could. I don't really see any reason why they couldn't. Now, last team here is San Antonio. They traded DeJounte Murray for picks. They are going to tank very, very clearly. They still have Keldon Johnson and Jakob Pertl. They've got Devin Vassell. But when they they drafted Josh Primo with the 12th overall pick in the draft in 2021, it was very, very clear that they were going to go the long-term tank route. It kind of took them a while 
They needed to get good value for a player like DeJounte Murray, but they also traded Derek White at the previous trade deadline. So I'm not really surprised that they're going this direction. They are going to go full tank mode for Victor Wembanyama, and it wouldn't surprise me if they got him. They're going to lose a lot, a lot of games. And they've done this before where they've had a one-year tank and it ended up getting them a historic prospect with Tim Duncan back in 1997. Now it's 2022, will be the 2023 draft. And Victor Wembanyama looks like one of those top generational prospects. He measured at seven foot four with an eight foot wingspan. And he's one of the best playmakers, shooters, and defensive forces in draft history. So there's a reason why a lot of these teams are very much okay with tanking. OKC, they are going to fold pretty quickly so that they could get a chance at him. Houston, they're okay going very young because those guys are not going to win a lot of games. And San Antonio, they traded their point guard. They don't have a point guard. They literally have Trey Jones as their only point guard on the roster. And Josh Primo is probably going to start for them at the five or at the one. So it's going to be interesting to see who gets Victor Webinyama, but it would not surprise me if it was either Houston or San Antonio in this division. And that sort of reflects in their tiers. That reflects in which teams are actually in contention or not. I have four different tiers right now that are kind of set out for the West. You've got the contenders. You've got the playoff teams. You've got the play-in teams. And then you've got the really bad teams. There's probably a fifth tier in there tier in there that's between three and four, where you've got the not play-in but better than the tanking teams. That's probably your Sacramento's, your LA Lakers. Maybe the Lakers are a little bit better, but could be the Blazers, etc. But I think that both Houston and San Antonio are in the last tier where you're definitely tanking. They may be the only two teams in that tier. But I think tier two is where you have the rest of these teams. Dallas, New Orleans, and Memphis, they are not firmly contenders. Dallas, because they lost Jalen Brunson, because they replaced him with Christian Wood and JaVale McGee, guys that are not playoff proven, I think you have to move them out of the tier one conversation. And that's fine. Like Maybe they're playing the long game a little bit more. Maybe they're waiting for the next superstar or star even, to become available. But I do think that you have to move them out of Tier 1, for this year at least. And then New Orleans, maybe they get up to Tier 1. Maybe Memphis stays in Tier 1 for the contention sphere. But I just think that there are four other teams that are better that are all in Tier 1. You've got Denver, you've got Golden State, Phoenix, and the LA Clippers. All four of those teams are going to be really, really good. And I think that they would all beat Dallas, New Orleans, Memphis, etc. in playoff series. So that's where you're looking at with this division. The team with the brightest future is pro- it, it could you could make an argument that it's the team that gets Victor W. Uh, whether it's Houston, San Antonio, or if it's not in that division, then it's probably still Dallas, just because they have Luca. Forty-seven points of the game today, still very very young going to be at the center of the NBA sphere for a long time. New Orleans could seriously make a push for that, though, and Memphis still has John Morant. So 
I think you could make an argument for any of the teams in this division, depending on if Houston or San Antonio gets Wembenyama. But in terms of the actual future of the NBA, like which is the face of the NBA, Luka feels like he's the face. Luka feels like he's going to evolve into that Michael Jordan, LeBron James tier in terms of who the NBA wants to market, who they want to center around all of their marketing, all of their game action, all of their kind of festivities. It has never felt like they want to surround Giannis like that. They did try to surround Curry and and have continued to surround Curry, and they're very thankful that he won the title. But there's definitely a push that between all of the young guys, it's Giannis, it's Doncic, it's Booker, and it's Tatum. It's not Jokic or Embiid for whatever reason, whether it's because they're bigs and it's not necessarily like for whatever reason, there's been some adverse, some adversity when it comes to supporting the big man and crowning a big man as the best player in the NBA. It's very rarely happened, even when it was Tim Duncan or it was Shaquille O'Neal. Ever since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I don't think that the league has really thought of a big man as the best player in the world. It's gone from Kobe to LeBron to I think probably, or no, uh, from MJ to Kobe to LeBron and maybe to Curry, I guess. But it hasn't been a big man. At least not to my belief in terms of the widespread NBA fandom. Luca feels like he's poised to take that mantle. I don't know if I agree, but it, it's games like today where he scores 47 in a game that lasts 40 minutes in a very, very important Eurobasket competition for him that he just looks like the face of the NBA. He looks like a player that the NBA would want to hitch their wagon to. And so we'll see if that continues to happen. I think that they should be making an effort for the two-time MVP. And you could be talking about Giannis or Jokic in that one. But I think it's going to be Luka. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to wrap up this conversation with a Davon Reed versus Christian Brown article that I did on Wednesday. We'll be right back. Final segment, pickaxe and roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I want to wrap up this conversation by talking about Davon Reed, by talking about Christian Brown, and the backup small forward position that the Nuggets are going to be trying to fill during training camp. And it, it may go on longer than that, this battle, this competition, because I don't think the Nuggets know the answer right now, and I don't think that they want to know the answer right now. It's very possible that this competition looks very different in January than it does right now, just kind of the bird's eye view, in September. Because right now it looks like you've got two main competitors for the spot, Davon Reed and Christian Brown. The starting unit is basically set, where you've got Jamal Murray, KCP, 
Michael Porter, Aaron Gordon, and Jokic. And then in the backcourt for the for the bench, you've got Bones Highland, and you've got Bruce Brown. Those guys make sense. It makes sense to place those players there. Now, Bruce Brown could slide to the three in some situations when maybe KCP is playing with the bench, maybe Jamal Murray and Bones Highland are playing together, in which case Bruce Brown probably slides to the three. It could be uh, Ish Smith who plays the one, and then you've got Bones Highland and Bruce Brown at the three. But when it's all bench units, or at least maybe the stagger comes from Michael Porter playing the four, I think that there's definitely an argument that this position will be very pivotal for what the Nuggets decide to do and how how good they are when it comes to the regular season and the playoffs. Because right now I think the Denver, in their ideal world, would run a nine-man rotation where you've got Jamal Murray and the starters. And then off the bench, you've got four spots. You've got Bones Highland. You've got Bruce Brown. You've got one of uh, Jeff Green or Zeke Naji, one of those guys, and then they play the small ball five. And then you've got, let's say it's Davon Reed, and he plays the three while Michael Porter staggers with the bench at the four. I think that's what's Michael Malone would want, at least for important regular season games. Now, it could be Vlako Chanchar. He showed and has continued to show in international play that when he does play, he's pretty stable. He's pretty good. He's pretty functional. Can make passes, can make switches on the defensive end, can grab rebounds, and can hit some shots. Guys like that are very important. But I do think that ultimately Christian Brown or Davon Reed is going to be one of those guys that plays over a 1,000 minutes this year. And they fill an important spot for Denver, whether it's just in the regular season, maybe it extends into the playoffs, that one of those guys is going to be very, very important to what the Nuggets bench looks like this year. Davon Reed, for example, more of an offensive-minded player, more of a guy who he hits the spot-up shots, He can go off the dribble. He can run DHOs. He can make some passes. He's an overall, I think, jack-of-all-trades type on the offensive end, where I don't think you're going to, like, if you leave him open, he's going to hit shots. But he's also not a high-volume shooter. So if he shoots, like, six, seven times a game, that's probably not in the best interest of the team. And it's also possible that last year, his 668 minutes, that that's just a small sample size, and then he kind of adjusts and comes back to earth at some point. I do think, though, that if you do play him next to Bones Highland, that's going to help out Denver's bench offense, because right now I would project that it's going to be him, Bones, Bruce Brown at the two, Zeke Naji at the five, and Jeff Green at the four. That would be my guess for what the all-bench lineup looks like. And in that case... You don't necessarily have a traditional five, which means you can't run traditional pick and roll with bones. You're probably running some isolations. You're probably generating switches with Zeke Naji screening on ball, with Jeff Green screening on ball. And then you're running some 
Bones Highland isolations in a lot of these moments. But let's say Bones, let's say he's got Davion Mitchell on him and he's struggling to get free. He's the focal point of the opposing team's game plan, especially when Denver goes all bench. And you need somebody else to bring the ball up the court. Now, Bruce Brown can do that. There's no doubt about that. He can handle the ball a little bit, but he can't really shoot off the dribble. He has to go all the way to the rim. He has to maybe get to his floater. Davon Reed can shoot off the dribble. He shot and maintained a 65%, or actually, no, a 61% EFG percentage in pull-up jumpers this year. That's both pull-up twos and pull-up threes. His pull-up two, he shot 65%. That's insane. And you're going to have to take a lot of those shots in lineups where Jeff Green and Zeke Nagy are on the floor because they don't really have a bunch of gravity where they're going to be able to help generate corner threes for the op- for their teammates, where Bones Highland can kick out to the top of the key, can kick out to the wing, can kick out to the corner. And those guys are just going to be open. Davon Reed might have to create some shots. And I think he's more well-suited to do that than a guy like Christian Brown. Now, Christian Brown, better defensively. Very clearly a solid defender already, even though he's a rookie. Showed a lot of great things at Summer League. Showed a a lot of great things at Kansas. And he strikes me as a guy that Michael Malone's going to fall in love with because he knows Christian Brown is going to generate some steals. He's going to generate some stops. Then he's going to get out in transition and show some massive emotion, some fire, maybe throw down some alley-oops, some dunks. And then he's also going to cut. He's going to do some of the off-ball things that Michael Malone loves to see, and that will create some easy shots. I do think that his shooting is going to be at least a question mark. But the more important thing is that Christian Brown isn't going to really be a playmaker off the dribble at all. He can make passes. He can make uh, reads and see the floor pretty well. But if somebody gets up into his airspace, he's going to have to put the ball on the ground. And he really showed a weakness of that at Summer League. It's definitely not his game. He's going to have to improve there. And maybe he can. Maybe he does in between now or in between uh, when Summer League happened and when game one of the regular season happens on October 19th. Maybe he does improve. Maybe that's all Michael Malone needs to see before inserting him into the rotation. And maybe it's his defense that Michael Malone values more than Davon Reed's better offense at this stage. But I do think that there is a debate here. That Michael Malone, he knows that Denver has to survive offensively if they want to maintain the bench. Last year, they couldn't survive offensively with Faku out there, with Jermichael Green. And then when they turned to Bones Highland at the one, DeMarcus Cousins at the five, they were able to do it. Now, there weren't many minutes where Bones was the one, and then it was like Zeke Naji at the five or Jeff Green at the five. Not a ton of minutes of that, but in those minutes, Denver was about average. Their offensive rating was fine. So maybe that's all Denver needs to be is average. And if that's the case, then maybe you would rather have the defense 
with Christian Brown, where he can really lock some people up because you want to make sure that you have him ready to be a playoff option. That was the good thing about Bones this last year, was he got a lot of regular season experience, and it actually put him into pretty good position to be an impactful piece in the playoffs. He wasn't perfect. He actually was horrible in Game 5. But up until that point, he was very, very good and had was a double-digit scorer in three of the total five games. Denver may need Christian Brown to be a good defensive piece, a reliable defensive piece, when the playoffs roll around. Because I think you're probably going to have Bruce Brown play a lot of minutes, but you might need some other defender in those situations. Let's say somebody gets hurt. Let's say Michael Porter needs a break. Let's say he's not doing well, and you just need another big body to go out there. Christian Brown is 6'7". He can contest those shots. He might be one of Denver's best isolation defenders against wings next year, and that's insane. That's insane to think. But if that's the case, then you're going to need to get him some reps. But you're also going to need to get Davon Reed some reps. He had 668 minutes last year, and he's barely played in the NBA. He'll probably double his overall minute totals just next season. Which says to me that Denver, they have a major decision to make. Both of those guys deserve time, or at least we think they will deserve time. And it's going to be interesting to see the direction that Michael Malone goes, and it might be very prevalent when it comes to the beginning of the season, because whoever he picks may have to replace Michael Porter Jr. in the starting lineup at various points, because Michael Porter, he's going to have his his injury maintenance, his injury management. He's going to have some rest, which means that maybe it's game three of the season, game two, game three where one of those guys might start. That's a big, big thing. I assume that Bruce Brown is probably going to be the guy that starts in those situations, but that's an assumption. They might just want to play it traditionally. But we're going to see. We're going to see how it evolves. I'm very curious to see who leads the position battle out of training camp, who gets the opportunities, and what it looks like when February comes around, when April comes around, maybe Denver trades for a backup three. Maybe the backup three isn't currently on the roster. We're going to have to see. That'll do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Really good conversation today. I uh, love talking about Eurobasket. love talking about all these different divisions. If you are definitely looking for a more comprehensive conversation on each of these individual questions that I've been asking, make sure to go check out milehighsports.com. Check out the 20Q series. I just answered question eight. Will Christian Brown or Davon Reed earn the backup small forward spot? There are 20 questions total. There will be 12 more on the way, and all of them are pretty comprehensive. Make sure to check it out. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys on Friday.